This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. And welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. Come on in, weary traveler. Hang your cloak on a peg. Grab a stool and come gather round the fire. There are stories to be told and you are among friends. Happy Father's Day to all the dads out there. I spent uh, Father's Day in my old hometown of Brantford, Ontario, at my mom's with the mighty Aphrodite and the twins. And I took the boys down to Mohawk Lake, where they did a little fishing. We had a nice barbecue. It was a great day. Hoping uh, all the fathers had a great day as well. The entire program tonight is dedicated to UFO crash retrievals. Photojournalist and investigative reporter Paula Harris is here in Hour 1. Decorated Vietnam War vet Clifford Stone will be here in the second hour. And Victor Vigiani from Zeland News Network will be my special uh, co-host for both hours. Uh, Before we get rolling, registration is now open for my live web conference, which is uh, on digital consciousness. And that is happening Thursday, July the 9th, from 10.30 p.m. to 12 a.m. Eastern, featuring Jim Elvidge, the author of The Universe Solved and Digital Consciousness, A Transformative Vision. Again, Thursday, July 9th. This is an exclusive web conference with limited access. We're only admitting 100 people. It'll take place via Zoom. You can go to strangeplanet.ca and under events and appearances at strangeplanet.ca, again in the menu bar, under events and appearances, click on web conferences. And all the details are there and the link as well to register. Thursday, July 9th, 1030, 10.30 p.m. to 12 a.m. Eastern, Digital Consciousness with yours truly and Jim Elvich. We're going to dive deep into secret government UFO crash retrieval projects over the next two hours. Before I introduce Paula Harris, let me first welcome Victor Vigiani, the executive director of Zeland News Network, back to the program. Hey, Victor, how are you, my friend? Just fine, my friend. It's just so great to be with you again and co-hosting what I know is going to be a fascinating show. I can't wait. Before we get rolling... How do people connect to Zeland News Network, where you're posting some uh, amazing stories and blogs and so forth? 
Yes, for certain. All you have to do is just type into your, uh, whatever your browser might be, just Zland Communications, Z-L-A-N-D Communications, and you'll hit the the news blog, uh, ZNN News Blog, and you'll get all the press releases, uh, editorials, announcements, uh, like what's on the show tonight, and all kinds of uh, new information that's uh, literally coming down uh, on the pipe almost on a daily basis, Richard. I know. It's enough to make your head spin, isn't it? There's just it too really much. is. Yeah, it really is. It's just, uh, although there's a lot going on in the planet that uh, I guess is distracting people from their normal routines, what's happening in the, the UFO research community is is indeed, I, the only word that I can come up with is overwhelming. And I think that if uh, people would want to you know, distract themselves for a moment from the the dire situation that the planet is in, in in, uh, in a totally different context with respect to the the pandemic. I think they will uh, find some fascinating information to give us an indication there's a brighter future out there when you look at the broader geopolitical context of what's really going on on the planet, not just with the pandemic. All right, let's uh, get Paula in here. Paula Harris is a photojournalist, investigative reporter in the field of UFOs and extraterrestrials related phenomena research. She's also a widely published freelance writer, especially in Europe. She studied ET related phenomena since 1979 and is on personal terms with many of the leading researchers in the field from 1980 to 1986. She assisted Dr. J. Allen Hynek with his UFO investigations and has interviewed many top military witnesses concerning their involvement in the government truth embargo. In 1997, Paula met and interviewed Colonel Philip Corso in Roswell, New Mexico, and became a personal friend and confidant. She was instrumental in having his book, The Day After Roswell, for which she wrote the preface and translated into Italian. One of Paula's most Recently published books, Exopolitics, Stargate to the New Reality, contains 23 new and exciting interviews with international expert witnesses. Paula lives in Colorado and travels to Rome, Italy often. She has a master's degree in education and teaches history and photojournalism, as well as online classes in exopolitics for Michael Sala's Exopolitics Institute. She's the author of Connecting the Dots, Making Sense of the UFO Phenomenon, UFOs, how does one speak to a ball of light? Exopolitics, all of the above. Exopolitics, Stargate to a New Reality, Conversations with Colonel Corso, and UFOs, all of the above and beyond. Paula Harris, welcome back to Conspiracy, uh, The Conspiracy Show. How are you? I'm doing well, Richard. Thanks for inviting me. I am stuck at home <laughs> these months, so I've had a lot of time to look over the UFO phenomenon, a lot of time to do some studying, and I would be running around the world right now if I could. Well, it's it's a good time for all of us maybe to slow down a little bit and just kind of uh, push the reset button. Uh, say hello to Victor Vigiani. Hi, Victor. How are you doing? Just fine, Paula. Just fine. Glad you're uh, Glad you're with us and looking forward to a great conversation. Yeah, I want to say before we go on that my mother was born in Stratford, Ontario, so I have a Canadian past, uh, even though I consider myself, you know, uh, Italian. Uh, my mom was born in Stratford, so I have, uh, you know, a heartfelt connection with Canada. Oh, wonderful. Wonderful. Well, it's an all-Canadian hour, this uh, this hour. Uh, can can we go back to your 
your relationship with Dr. Hynek, because I wanted to ask you about uh, his work with with uh, Project Blue Book, but also the possibility and Clifford Stone will be here in the second hour and I'm sure we'll get into this. It, it has been suggested that outside of Blue Book, perhaps working alongside Blue Book, maybe not so much working alongside, there was another project called Blue Fly that was involved with the retrieval of uh, crashed UFOs. Did, did, did Dr. Heineck ever speak to you about that? No, he didn't. Uh, Blue Fly, uh, and the, there's another project besides Blue Fly. These are top secret projects. Now, we've got to remember that when you speak to Clifford Stone, you're speaking to Army. The individual um, uh, armed services all had the cover-up. The Air Force had a cover-up. The Army had a cover-up. And, and you're going to find this interesting, Richard, but who's in charge of UFOs is the Navy. Because the Navy considers outer space the other ocean. And most of the astronauts were Navy pilots. So admirals of the Navy, I'm not going to name them, have been part of the, uh, of the cover-up, have been part of the knowledge. And so the three different... Um, Parts of the armed forces, they do not communicate very well. Uh, the, uh, the Colonel Philip Corso was Army, and, and uh, Clifford Stone is Army. Now, Colonel Corso said that when he was doing um, uh, back engineering, he was doing it for the competitive edge of the Army, which meant that the Air Force probably had stuff back in 1947 and, and as early as 1945. Because let's talk about this. The first crash was in San Antonio, New Mexico, one month after the atomic bomb exploded in 1945. Then we, and that's because of the atomic bomb situation. Then we have the uh, 1947 Roswell stuff. But that's where the 509th Bomb Squadron that threw the bombs on Nagasaki and Hiroshima were lodged. So, you know, we have a connection there with world history that people ought to study. Absolutely. Over to you, Victor. No, I just wanted to uh, to kind of enhance what what Paula said. Um, <clears throat> we, we could get into this with Clifford a little bit later on, but um, he wrote a 171-page report um, on the whole blue fly um, expedition into into the secrecy, and I guess what I want to ask Paul is how how discreet were all of the section or categories or compartmentalizations? I guess is the right word. How discreet were they, Paul? Like was one uh, entity not talking to another? Was that the way they operate, or was there any interconnection at all? No, that's the way they always operate, Victor. I mean, you know, Alan Hynek was hired to debunk. UFO cases for the Air Force. <clears throat> so I'm, I'm naming different parts of the armed services, uh, the Air Force. And so Alan started doing that. And of course, he got a very bad reputation that he could part, harsh, you know, hardly live down when he called uh, a case. I think it was in, um, up in Minnesota, uh, swamp gas. Because he couldn't think of what it was. He changed his mind in the Socorro, New Mexico case, the Lonnie Zamora case. Alan 
looked at everything very scientifically. He went to uh, explain it first, you know, the way he is. He's a scientist. He's an astronomer. He wasn't a ufologist. And he, he said most of them could be explained. And so when Alan Hynek was working, he was working for the Air Force, and they explained most of them until we got to the Lonnie Zamora case in, in Socorro, New Mexico, where the uh, he was a state trooper. He'd seen a landing. He'd seen two beings. And when you have physical traces, like you did in that case, where it had four, the, the craft, which was not a flying saucer, it was egg-shaped, had four landing pads, and you could measure how heavy it was by how deep those, those, um, the landing, uh, uh, you know, uh, legs were. By the way, all this is going to be in a movie, and this is for you to understand, called The Phenomena by James Fox is coming out this year. Because James Fox is going to spend a lot of time on Lonnie Zamora case. He's going to spend a lot of time on Alan Hynek and Jacques Vallée, who Jacques Vallée worked with Alan Hynek. Uh, both Jacques Vallée and Alan went to the United Nations to try to open this up in the 1970s. But the, the different parts of the, uh, the armed services and the intelligence community well, the CIA, uh, the DIA, and all that, they all have information, and nobody sits down and talks to anybody. So what you have is a heavy compartmentalized type of, of subject matter where the right hand doesn't know what the left hand is doing, and then you have the media that gets in there that mixes everything up, so the general public has no idea what's going on. And what I learned in all of these years was that there's a lot of disinformation mixed in with the information. So there's a little bit of truth in everything, but you never know the whole story. Did you mention the compet- uh, Sorry, go, go ahead, ahead, Richard. Okay, you mentioned, you know, the, the Navy, uh, they seem to be kind of overseeing the the UFO uh, file, if you will. When there is a crash, whether we're talking about Roswell or whether we're talking about uh, the Aztec UFO crash or Kecksburg a little more recently in 65, um, I mean, is it like, I'm trying to think of an analogy here, and the best I can come up is when 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 you have all these competing tow truck companies racing to the scene of a crash so that they can, you know, they can get the, uh, the contract to haul off the, the wreck. Uh, is it as at times as chaotic as that, these competing government agencies trying to take control of a crash, or is there is there more coordination from the top that basically dictates who's going to be on the scene and who will who will uh, basically be in control? Well, see, I can't really answer that question because I don't know. But in the case like of the 1945 crash and Roswell, the Army Air Force was one. They were one. They didn't split up until 1948, so you had the Army and the Air Force together, and they were in charge. The Navy is the one, I think, that does a lot of the coordination but um, the and is in charge of outer space. But the Army Air Force in the old days were the ones that got the materials. And in my case, I can only talk about what I know. In my case, because I was so close to Colonel Corso, Corso didn't come out with the day after Roswell until the 50th anniversary of the Roswell crash. 
and he didn't get the stuff until 1960. He got it during the uh, Kennedy administration. Well, you bet your life it was somewhere else before that. There's, you know, in other words, if Corso is getting the fiber optics and the, you know, the transistor and everything else he had, the high tenacity fibers and all that, and he's getting it in 1960, and, and Roswell happened, and he thought that he got, got the stuff from Roswell, happened in 47, then the Air Force had the rest of the stuff. So the critics of Corso, Colonel Corso said, well, he's lying because the stuff was in the general public before him. In other words, before he got it. Well, of course it was. They just didn't have anybody like Colonel Corso talking about that. You know, the secret is the secret. Let's get real about the technology. It's the technology, not the aliens, not the visitation of the aliens, not the, the religions being upset, not the panic. The, the secret is the military industrial complex. And I know you've done a lot of work with uh, Richard Dolan, who does a great job discussing that. The, you know, they just don't want to talk about what, the, you know, the toys they have, the things they have, the anti-gravity, everything that's come out of these these crashes, they don't want to talk about it because it's a whole sub-level. Right, right. Yeah, I think I can, you know, in... in um your analogy, Richard, about the tow truck drivers arriving on a, on a crash scene. Uh, a good example of that would have been the, the crash in uh, the Aztec crash in 1948. Uh, the great book written by um, Scott Ramsey and Susan Ramsey regarding how that all played out and a very similar situation with police and, and different arms of the military trying to get to the crash site. Right. And when right. they arrived, you know, there were people bedlam. crawling all over the UFO. And it was really a, a, a pretty bad scene. Exactly, yes. Did you want to follow up well, uh, with Paula, Victor? Yeah, I just yeah, wanted you to ask. Know, you, you should know, though, that there is an accord worldwide. There's a book, and I wish people would read it. It's called Magic Eyes Only by Ryan Wood. He's, he is the son of Bob Wood, who worked for McDonnell Douglas, um, who is a great ufologist. Uh, he, he's got 93 different crashes in that book. Uh, unfortunately, and I just tried to buy it again, I have it, and it costs $40, but it's got 93 different crashes worldwide, including the Virginia case. It does have the 1945 case. It has, um, I think it's Cape Girardeau. It has the early cases way back. And uh, that book it should it should be in everybody's library. It's it's a reference book, and uh, it's clearly stated that in any country, whenever we have any kind of uh, crash, the Americans are the first ones allowed to take out the craft and to be in charge of it. It's an agreement countries have. What about uh, the work of of, um, of Leonard Stringfield? He was the one I think who probably uh, instigated the most uh, action or at least commentary on, on the number of crashes that he knew about. Uh, how, how does his work affect not only just the whole idea of, you know, going onto the crash scene, but the political aspects of what politicians know about what might be going on, or at least intelligence agencies? Well, you know, I, the only thing I can say, I mean, I can say a couple of things, but I met Len Stringfield, but I was really freaked out because I had just um, um, connected with Alan Hynek. He had asked me to do his Italian translations. 
I went to a conference in 19, I think it was 1980 in Chicago. This man came in, he had an attache case chained to his hand, uh, to his arm, I'm sorry. And uh, I said to Alan, who's that man over there? And he said, that's Len Stringfield. I said, well, why is he hanging on to, you know, that that material that way? And he goes, well, you know, Paula, he said, Len Stringfield has photos of the alien autopsies at Roswell and the testimony of doctors. He was one of the early people, um, Richard and Victor, that did the work. He was a field researcher. This guy was amazing. His book, Code Red. And I keep, I'm going to mention books because, like I was talking to Victor before, I'm a teacher. I have a master's in education. You need to read about these things because the, you, it, the only way I would ever give a student a grade is if they went to the source. The source for Len Stringfield is the book, Code Red. And, and other books that he wrote. And th- these people were the early researchers that really had a lot of information that new researchers today in 2020 have never heard of. So all I can tell you is that he did his job. He did it well. And if you could grab hold of his early books, you'll find out details about not only UFO crashes, but a, a lot of the UFO phenomenon that people have no idea about today. All right, uh, Victor Paula, we are heading into a break. Uh, We'll come back and delve further into UFO crash retrieval programs. And uh, just a reminder, coming up in the second hour, Clifford Stone will drop by with Victor and I, and we'll we'll, uh, plumb some more into this amazing topic. This is The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Don't you dare go away. Different views make great conversation. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio. To speak with Richard live, call 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. Welcome back. Just a quick programming note coming up next week. Uh, Jerome Corsi will be here and also... Retired fire, firefighter Norman Traversi will join me from Ottawa, and Norman is attempting a personal prosecution uh, for the SNC-Lavalin uh, scandal uh, involving Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, and he'll tell you how he is making out with his personal prosecution, uh, let's call it uh, adventure. That's coming up next week on The Conspiracy Show. Paula Harris stays with us, paulaharris.com, P-A-O-L-A. That's P-A-O-L-A, Harris.com. Victor Vigiani from Zealand News Network. We're talking UFO crash retrievals. Um, I've always been fascinated by Kecksburg, and and I think the the crash there in 65 in Pennsylvania, uh, maybe because I I feel it's kind of overlooked. We talk about Roswell. We talk about um, Aztec. We talk about Socorro, but we don't talk as much uh, about Kecksburg. Uh, what are your thoughts on on the Kecksburg UFO crash and and uh, what we, what we what we know about it, Paula? Well, you know Leslie Kane did the work on that, and you know that she also filed a uh, a lawsuit against NASA for Kecksburg. Um, since I never researched it, I'm not really a, an authority on it, but I did ask ground uh, ground crew astronaut. Um, Clark McClellan, who's been one of my whistleblowers for many, many years about that, and he said he was there. 
but he's Office of Naval Intelligence. There you go again, the Navy. And he said that the, what, what he saw was an acorn-shaped um, vehicle, but he, he was told, he was told, um, but then he, you know, he, again, he was with NASA, that it was a part of a Soviet reentry uh, vehicle. Um, but, you know, so uh, you don't know who to believe anymore. I mean, I, I don't know whether that he was told that he was physically there. Uh, so he was told that because that's what they believe or it was a UFO. Um, I, you know, I only can really deal with stuff that I personally was involved with. So it's really hard. What do you think about it, Richard? You're fascinated with it. Well, you know the the people that were allegedly on the ground in the either the 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 night of or the day after uh, the head of NASA, I believe it was James Webb at the time. You had members of the Joint Chiefs of Staff that were reportedly were there. Um, I mean, I I would be curious, and, and this is something the next time we have uh, Grant Cameron on, Victor, is to find out mm-hmm. whether there is he's discovered anything in the the Johnson Library. He was president at the time. You know, no one talks about the Johnson Library. You know, uh, as far as ex presidents go, I don't know. He's I guess he's got a bit of a black mark uh, on him. We don't hear much about the Johnson Library, but that would be interesting to me to find out what might come out of there. Yeah, the one thing that I can tell you about the the actual uh, incident, uh, and having spoken to a couple of researchers on this, is that if it was uh, some you know terrestrial uh, satellite uh, or or whatever that that did crash, generally speaking, those craft take a very direct route when they fall out of the atmosphere, and this particular craft took a very circuitous route. As it as it as it plummeted towards uh, towards Earth, it wasn't sort of a, a one straight shot uh, and, and landing. It was a very curved kind of aperture that this craft took. So it, it satellites don't generally take that kind of uh, approach to to a crash. So there's a lot of evidence that indicates that that this was not necessarily a terrestrial vehicle. And the other aspect of this that uh, I've looked at is that the person who was in charge of of, uh, of guarding the, uh, the, 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 the craft in, in, in a building indicated very clearly that the, the hubbub around the craft itself, when it was commandeered by the, by the military, uh, it, it was uh, held in such strict secrecy, uh, which may or may not uh, you know, indicate that it was Soviet or, or some other country, but the amount of security that was behind it was extraordinary, much more so than would be from a terrestrial kind of craft. Wouldn't it during the height well, of the Cold War, if it was the testimony of Clifford Stone, really uh, compelling? I helped to uh, to publish his book. Um, I, I actually published Eyes Only. I hope people buy that book. It's really amazing um, because when he did his uh, his uh, testimony at, at you know Stephen Greer's Disclosure Project, he was extremely compelling and and he talked about the first crash that he cleaned up was an Indian town gap 
Pennsylvania in 19, I think you said 1969. I'm going, oh my God, that's that, you know, soon. It was just like yesterday, 1969, Indian Town Gap, Pennsylvania. It's part of the Disclosure Project testimony. By the way, if, if people are asking who I admire as far as researchers, Stephen Greer, absolutely number one, and Grant Cameron, you mentioned, Colin yes. Andrews. Uh, these, you know, these, these researchers have been around for a very long time and have tried so hard, and Stephen Bassett, as you know, Victor, uh, to bring out the truth in a very, not a theatrical way, but a very historical way. So, in, in other words, they get the protagonists, uh, the, the military people involved, the whistleblowers, the real whistleblowers to come forth. So, um, you know, when, when Clifford Stone, and I hope he says this, I asked him about why he said there were 57 different species visiting the Earth. Colonel Corso personally had told me there was 52 categorized in the Pentagon, and that's a big number. We're not dealing with reptilians, greys, and Nordics, three different kinds. We're dealing with 57. Uh, Clifford told me he had a first aid manual, uh, for this uh, purpose, because he did crash retrieval, so if they were going to do first aid, they wouldn't kill whoever it was aboard, because the government already knew, uh, more than the government, the, the micromanagers of the UFO group there, the MJ-12 guys, they already knew uh, that there were more than three species visiting, and if you're going to do crash retrieval, you're, you're going to do any kind of uh, help, or first day, you got to know what you're dealing with. So this is way, way farther along. A moon dust and blue fly, he'll talk about in detail, but this is farther along than the average person thinks it is. Right. Go ahead, Victor. When you talk, it's a good point. When you talk about the historical information that you're that you're alluding to, you know, Project Moon Dust and and all of that. Uh, what what effect do you think, or at least the the cumulative effect of all of that historical information, uh, has on the the listener right now who's listening to the program for the perhaps the first time, or someone who's not totally aware of what's going on with respect to crash retrievals and all the, the whole the whole uh, uh, the whole aspect of this. What effect do you think history has on their understanding of what this whole UFO ET issue is? And, and some of the new information that's coming out. Does history have an effect on, on people that are just learning about this, or is it just sort of something new that they, they, uh, they think about and read in the newspaper or talk about with, with respect to the Navy or the Pentagon? Well, I'll answer, that's a good question. <laughs> you know, that's a good question that you asked me. I'm going to answer you in two ways. My own children, I've been doing 40 years worth of work. I started with Heineck and it was a serious venture and, and, and in Europe it's taken a lot more seriously. I mean, nobody wears a tin hat, nobody does ridicule and the scientists are interested in Europe. Here, it, for me, it's turned into an entertainment field, okay? Uh, and my children have never read one of my books or, you know, seen me speak or anything. But when the New York Times came out <laughs> with, uh, with the footage and it was in the New York Times, this is like they've known me forever. Uh, my son and daughter write to me and say, you know, Mom, did you read the New York Times article that UFOs are real? And I'm going, it took the New York Times for you to take me seriously? 
Thanks, you know, Mom. I mean, after all these years, I've been working on this. So their their reaction is very important because if it's in the New York Times or if a, a lawmaker gets involved, they believe it. Uh, but uh, the average person, and, and you're not going to like the answer, is basically interested in entertainment. I, because I, I've been working at it in, in the background and as a field researcher, I'm interested in the historical aspect. And also, you know, Victor, you know, we're in exopolitics, which means it's the psychological, it's the institutional, it's the historical aspect of ufology that really matters. Um, but, you know, the average person, I don't think, is really that interested in, in the details. They would rather see, like, the alien or something that's more exciting or whatever, because most mm-hmm. of the people are getting their information off. Nobody's reading anything. They don't go to the sources. I don't know if they're reading Alan Hynek's books, you know, uh, or any, or Jacques Vallée's or anybody else's right now. I think that they're getting their information off internet. And when you get your information on off internet, you're getting a lot of disinformation or a lot of fantasy or a lot of science fiction. It's very frustrating for us in the field that have been working at it for so long. Do you think that some of the information that comes out with respect to the crash retrieval, um, uh, you know, concern or issue, when you're when you're talking about, you know, something landing that's not terrestrial or it's deemed to be not terrestrial and you've got the hint or at least some information that that bodies were involved irrespective of uh, of anything else how intriguing could that be to someone who knows nothing about this do they just dismiss it or do they say holy smoke how long has this been going on and why don't why don't i know about it we're going to get that well, answer off the uh, after the break here paula way because you know Clifford Paula, is Paula sorry I've got to I've got to jump in we got to take a quick time out we'll get to that uh, answer okay. when we come back Paula Harris Victor Vigiani stay with us UFO crash retrievals right here on the conspiracy show don't go away shaking the world and seeing what falls this is the conspiracy show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio Welcome back. Victor Vigiani from Zealand News Network stays with us. And Paula Harris, investigative reporter in the UFO ET field. Also, before the break, uh, Paula, Victor was asking you about people's general reaction to this very bizarre notion that alien bodies are being recovered. Yeah, you know, the first, first of all, all your uh, scientists and skeptics are going to say, why do why do UFOs crash if they're if they're so advanced and all this? You know, and we do have crashes. If there's a book with 93 crashes all over the world, we have crashes. Um, what's people's reaction? I don't know. You'd have to ask the people. I can only tell you mine. My reaction is that that there is a reason why we're being given this gift of technology. Uh, because that's what happens in 1947, uh, and, you know, before, when these craft would crash, we would gain the technology. Um, and in, in the crashes, for instance, the Virginia crash in Brazil, we not only gain the technology, you gain knowledge that there are other cultures visiting for some reason. What, what needs to happen is people need to ask. I don't know what their reaction is, but they need to ask. Um, 
is this real? And you're going to get it from the horse's mouth. And this is how I deal with my all my work. Any work I do, I go and fly. I've been to, to um, uh, the Kennedy Space Center several times. I've been to Roswell uh, every year for Clifford Stone. I've talked to other people that have been involved in crash retrieval. And that's the only way I can get any information is go to the people that know that this is real. Colonel Corso, in my book, Conversations with Colonel Corso, you actually have uh, a comparison of the bodies that he saw at Fort, I think it was Walter Reed or at uh, Wright-Patterson. It was Wright-Patterson. He saw the bodies with a human body. So Colonel Corso's not making up anything. He was the head of foreign technology division at the Pentagon. So I can, you know, if I want to know, I'm going to read what, what the body was like, that the autopsies of the body and so forth. Uh, and so it's, you know, I don't know what they're, what people's reaction are. For me, I'm not surprised. I mean, these, these things that are flying around obviously have uh, some kind of clone in them. And Colonel Corso told me that the gray alien, that's why I'm not going to put so much emphasis on the gray alien, which has become the mascot of ufology. I think Colonel Corso actually told me, he said, we're not worried about the little clone that flies the ships. He said, we're, we're worried about who created them that looks like us that's walking in the halls of the Pentagon. And the thing is that if Clifford is telling you there's 57 different species, some of them look exactly like us. And then I'm talking to Glenn Steckling, who did all the Adamski work, and he's saying they look exactly like us. So then your next question is, if they look exactly like us, are they here? Are, are they sitting in your restaurant? Are they walking among people? Are they? And, and it gets even more interesting after that, if you start asking the proper questions. Um, did we, we, we keep hearing about Robert Bigelow having... Uh, a hangar full of, well, I don't know about a hangar full, but he, having his hands on a lot of this uh, trace evidence and, and uh, uh, re re recovered artifacts from a UFO crash. What do you hear in the rumor mill about Bigelow's collection, the likelihood that he might start releasing some of this stuff? Um, not, first of all, if it's rumor mill, I don't know anything. I, I know Bigelow was interested but Bigelow is interested from the consciousness point of view. Bigelow also supported and paid for uh, Raymond Moody because Raymond Moody does life after death studies. And Bigelow is attaching his, his interest to, because his son committed suicide, to life after death, to paranormal. That's why Jacques Vallée was involved with them, too, um, because he's – and the paranormal is, is involved with this people. I mean, this is not just nuts and bolts. Anymore, at the end of my career here, I'm looking more at the paranormal than I'm looking at the nuts and bolts. But, you know, the idea that these could be interdimensional beings, that they're, you know, he's the one that bought the Skinwalker Ranch and had all that weirdness happening there, because he wants to know. Um, he was interested in every aspect of it. He's not just interested in the craft and the beings. He's interested in the cattle mutilations and all of the weirdness and the paranormal around the UFO phenomena. Um, so since I never met him and I don't, you know, have never dealt with him, the only thing I know is what I've been told by my colleagues 
And I don't think he's, I think now he's, you know, he's a, a, a businessman. I, he's got Bigelow Enterprises. He and Elon Musk are, are, are working into getting people into outer space. I think that's where his attention is. In the past, I think he was interested in all of the consciousness aspects, the life after death, the weirdness, the, all of that stuff, um, aspects in it. So, you know, this is greater than just um, one of the reasons, and I hope he tells you that. If he doesn't, I'm telling you this, that, that Clifford Stone even worked in these programs is because he had contact and he had psychic abilities. He has them today. So the, the, if you have psychic abilities and the remote, and I know you guys are interested in remote viewing, they, they use these people because that, that language is what the ETs deal with. I mean, they don't come down speak English, Chinese, and Italian. If you meet a live ET, you're going to have direct thought transfer. So you need psychics. You need to deal with people who has, who have abilities to deal with whoever's on that craft. So, um, and that's, uh, that's a real interesting part of this. Instead of taking it apart, you know, limb from limb, it's all, it's all of it. That's actually, that's why I wrote the last book, all of the above and beyond, because it's more of it. It's all of it. It's paranormal, interdimensional and all of it. All right. We'll uh, step away. This was a short segment. We'll come back. One more big chunk remains with Paula Harris and then on to hour two with Clifford Stone. Stay with us right here on The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Shaking the world and seeing what falls. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Victor Vigiani is the executive director of Zealand News Network. And Paula Harris is a photojournalist, investigative reporter for many decades in this UFO ET arena. And uh, her website, paulaharris.com, P-A-O-L-A, harris.com. Victor, over to you. Yeah, I just wanted to, thanks, Richard, just wanted to uh, broach, I guess, more of a <laughs> an etherical uh, question to you, you mentioned earlier before the break the, the the idea of the paranormal versus the whole nuts and bolts aspect of this whole issue, be it crash retrievals or whatever. What what do you see as the confluence between? And this is the problem I see with a lot of individuals, you know, in the, in the general public that are dealing with. How do you see the the confluence of the of the the psychology behind the whole UFO ET issue? And and the the technological or nuts and bolts uh, issue. I mean, they're they're two very different aspects of this of the same of the same issue. How do you how do you reconcile that in explaining it to people who are trying trying to deal with this issue? Oh Lord, it's very difficult. Um, you know, in my last, uh, you know, I say my last years, in my mature years of research, I began reading the books of Jacques Vallée. And he has, uh, four books called Forbidden Science, volume one, two, three, and four. And the reason why he's, he's controversial is because he's never separated the paranormal from the, the real. Because when, when something happens, no matter what it is, there is some unexplainable, un, uh, unexplainable by our common science today, 
And even Colonel Corso said that our science today cannot explain certain things. Mm-hmm. Um, and it basically has to be part of your investigation. You cannot just look at metal. You cannot just look at physical traces. I mean, Alan Hynek started like that, you know, close encounters of the first kind, second kind. The second kind was physical traces. You can get that in the Lonnie Zamora stuff because you, you see the physical traces, the radiation and all that. But it's so much more than that. Uh, the, the, if you really study this, it, it has a psychological effect on who they choose. You know, in Lonnie Zamora case, it was, it, he was a, a state trooper. Uh, in a lot of other, you know, instances in Travis Walton and Betty and Barney Hill, you know, these people were chosen in some way to have the experience. And then you have to go into psychology. And I was very close friends with John Mack, very close. I, so I could have these conversations with him because he, he was a psychiatrist. So my dream, Victor um, and Richard, is we should have had a team of a psychologist, a psychiatrist, an astronomer, uh, a, uh, a uh, you know, physical scientist, uh, and we should have teams of people that look at this, not just, uh, you know, people that go out there and, and, and just look at the nuts and bolts part of this, because it affects the witnesses, it affects... Uh, it, it affects everything, including our history, the timing of, of the Roswell crash. And, you know, and I, it, all my job was was to interview the people. I interviewed the mortician at Roswell, Glenn Dennis, when he told me he was asked for six children's caskets. And the, his, his, the next question was, where was the accident? Where the, were these kids killed? You know, and I got to speak to the people. So my my part of it is just to get the witness testimony, to put it in books word for word. But in my older age, and I'm 75 now, in my old age, I want to meet with a group of people to look at all of it. Every part of it, including the paranormal part of it that Jock talks about in Forbidden Science. Mm-hmm. Uh, you mentioned Jacques Vallée. Uh, could you spend a few moments telling us about the uh, the archives at Rice University? This is interesting because I recently spoke to a remote viewer uh, who was telling me that uh, Georgia uh, State University is now housing the archives of Ingo Swan. And here we now we have Rice University housing uh, the archives from Jacques Vallée, Whitley Strieber, and yourself. Tell us about that. And me, yeah. <laughs> You know, I'm in Colorado, and the chancellor of the University of Colorado is was my professor. He's the one that gave me my teaching degree. So I walk into his office. Uh, this is Phil DiStefano. I say, Phil, you know, I'm 75. I want my archives to go somewhere, and you guys got bad karma because you did the Condon Committee report. So how about taking all my really good research and you change your karma here at the University of Colorado? And he says, oh, that's a great idea. Paula, you're a viable person. I've known you for years. You know, I, you were my student, everything. But the University of Colorado would not take it. That they're, they're, you know, even though he's the chancellor, the, the, the people at the library said, no, we don't take stuff like that. 
So I was, I was with Jacques having dinner, and I said, Jacques, where's my stuff going to go? My kids aren't interested. It's going to go all in the trash. They're going to come in and throw everything away, all this audio tape. And I've, I've interviewed everybody. I mean, you name it, you know, all over the world. And, and uh, so he's, he, he actually picked up the phone and called uh, Rice University and said, you're going to take Paula's archives. So uh, I'm with Jacques Vallée and Whitley Strever, and I'm starting to box up my archive. And who's taking it? You're not going to believe it. It's in the Department of Religious Studies. Jeff Cripple, who is a published uh, author. You should read his book, The Flip. Uh, he is the head of the department, and he said, look, Paula, he said the graduate students are going to go through it. They're going to, like, you know, because I have a lot of maps, I have a lot of photos. I've got over 4,000 photos. I mean, whether it's John Mack or the early researchers, I have all this stuff, and they're going to go through it and put it in the archives, and you can't believe how thrilled I am. You can't believe how happy I am because all of this work gets to be put in a university, and I'm an academic person, so I'm super thrilled, and that's where Jack's going. The only difference is that Jack has left uh, a, um, a, an advi- a advisory thing that nobody gets to look at until 10 years after his death. So, um, but, but if you read his books right now, he's got the biggest disclosure. Forbidden Science for me has everybody's names in it. it is, the four volumes of Forbidden Science is a dis- are disclosure books. Victor? No, I just, uh, you know, Paula, you've, you've captured my mind on that last, the last comments that, that you made uh, regarding Jacques Vallée, because when I first got involved in this in 1975, I was in, in, a, in a Kohl's bookstore up in Barrie, Ontario, and I picked up his book, uh, you know, Revelations, and I stood there and read the introduction, and uh, I was completely struck by by his assessment of, of what was going on, because at the time I really didn't have any particular interest. How, how influential... Uh, is this man Jacques Vallée, and why hasn't he been more front and center? Is does he just want to stay away from the limelight? Well, or, no, it's not what the is limelight. It? He doesn't agree with three quarters of the circus out there. But he, he has to be making some sort of statement, though. He's he's an astronomer, and he how important is he? He's close encounters. The whole movie was made <laughs> around him. The whole movie was made around Spielberg. Made the movie. He is the most fascinating man I've ever met. He is the only man that, to me, has put the pieces of the puzzle together. And, of course, he's European. So mm-hmm. he also is very involved in, in uh, studies uh, of the European, uh, you know, especially French, the Valsol case. And, of course, in my conference, I put on a conference every year in Laughlin, Nevada. I have, uh, from Argentina, Witness to Another World, where Jacques in there, the story of Juan Perez that was made. Uh, he's been to, I think it's Brazil in, in this case, and, and he right. did the story. Uh, he, he, he goes all over the world the way I do and gets a, a clear picture. But, again, uh, it resonated with you, um, Victor, because the man is a genius. He's got it together. He's got his act right. together, and he he only does it because of the study and the fascination. Mm-hmm. Of course, you know he had a sighting 
when he in I think it was 1955 in broad daylight with another uh, young man. They both saw a UFO in their uh, uh, town in Paris. Uh, uh, it was a regular frying saucer it had a dome on it. So anybody that has that happening, I think, gets invited to be part of this game. Well, he was away from the scene for a while, and now he's kind of back. Which and we're great. We're 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 lucky to have him back. We're lucky to have you with us, Paula. I want to thank you so much. And you mentioned your your conference in Laughlin, Nevada, Starworks USA. That's uh, UFOs and artificial intelligence, and that's happening in November. And uh, where do people go for details? Oh, it's www.starworksusa.com. And Richard, I'm living with a bunch of robots in here that are driving me crazy uh, because I bought <laughs> robots, especially from China. So it's going to be an exciting conference talking about an exciting, innovative thing, which is artificial intelligence. Fantastic. Paula, always a delight. Be well, and I hope to talk again soon. You guys take care. All right. Bye now. Victor, you stay yeah. where you are. We'll be back on the other side with Clifford Stone right here on The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Don't go away. Live from Toronto, Canada, Earth, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio. And thanks for inviting me into your home, long-haul truck, RV, camper, taxi, your parents' well-appointed rec room with the simulated wood paneling, electric fireplace, and the painting of dogs playing poker, your loft, that greasy spoon just off the interstate, and your cabin in the woods. And howdy to all of you tuning in on our flagship station, AM 740, 96.7 FM, Zoomer Radio, here in Toronto, a 50,000-watt blowtorch heard across Ontario, parts of Quebec, Manitoba, from Maine to Minnesota, and south to the Carolinas. The largest broadcast footprint of any radio station in North America. And hi to everyone listening in on one of our affiliate stations across North America. Hey, you streaming us live at zoomerradio.ca and on the Zoomer Radio app. Those watching this radio program on my YouTube channel, Strange Planet, and those of you, of course, assembled in the YouTube live chat. However and wherever you're listening, I bid thee the warmest of welcomes, and I thank you for your fine company. Uh, this hour, more on secret government UFO crash retrieval programs. Victor Vigiani from Zeland News Network stays with us, and uh, coming up in just a moment, the legendary Clifford Stone. Say, if you enjoy The Conspiracy Show, check out my podcast, Conspiracy Unlimited, and uh, new episodes drop every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. You can listen and subscribe at conspiracyunlimitedpodcast.com, conspiracyunlimitedpodcast.com, and it's now available on Spotify. And for less than $2 a month, you can become a Conspiracy Unlimited Plus member. For just $1.99 per month, you get access to my back catalog of Conspiracy Unlimited episodes. That's over 380 episodes. Plus, you'll receive two exclusive commercial-free Plus episodes every month. Again, to become a Plus member, go to conspiracyunlimitedpodcast.com and click on Get Access to Premium Episodes, conspiracyunlimitedpodcast.com.
In the world of UFO research, the name of retired Army Sergeant Clifford Stone is nearly a legend. Decorated Vietnam combat veteran, he served 22 years. Uh, Clifford claims that he led a double life from the late 60s through his retirement in 1990. While officially assigned to an NBC team, that's nuclear, biological, and chemical retrieval and abatement detail, he asserts that he also served on top-secret UFO crash retrieval missions where he had physical contact with downed ET craft and interactions with captured non-human life forms. The official NBC team assigned allegedly served as a cover for those highly secretive and compartmentalized operations. And over a period of nearly 40 years, Clifford has amassed one of the largest private collections of authentic government documents, clearly establishing the hard reality of the UFO phenomenon. He's the author of UFOs Are Real and Eyes Only, the story of Clifford Stone and UFO crash retrievals. Clifford Stone, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? Fine. Thank you kindly, sir. And say hello to uh, my, my, my uh, co-host tonight, Victor Vigiani. Good evening, sir. Hi, Clifford. How are you doing? Everything okay? Yes, sir. Thank you. Attaboy. Uh, Clifford, for those not familiar with uh, Operation Moondust, just give us the, uh, the, the, the broad details of that. Well, uh, Project Moondust was the overall recovery operation of objects of unknown origin for the U.S. government. Uh, Project uh, Blue Fly actually, or Operation Blue Fly rather, was the actual recovery of those objects, even in foreign countries. We'd move them to a safe haven area, then we would try to go ahead and exploit the technologies involved with those objects. Uh, the official cover story was that, oh, these were nothing more than objects that were of Soviet origin, and we were recovering these to try to determine what type of advanced technology they were using. Nothing to be further from the truth. We knew these were objects of exotic origin that did not originate on the face of this planet. And we very much so wanted to retrieve the technology behind these objects. That's why we had these programs. In 1985, both code names, Moondust and Blue Five, became compromised. They never did away with the programs. However, they went ahead and changed their names. In 1992, I did a report, and I sent it to various members of Congress. Uh, our Senator Skeen here from New Mexico went ahead and helped me make additional copies and send them to members of uh, uh, Congress, because at that time they were actually, which most Americans aren't aware of, holding a inquest as to whether the government was keeping information from Congress illegally, up to and including information on UFOs. Uh, at that time, no one knew of the NRO, which is the National Reconnaissance Organization. I like to think, and I really feel I was, part of getting the government to acknowledge the NRO existed, and part of their mission was actually to go ahead and try to get gather information on UFOs. They actually took photographs of UFOs that were classified above top secret and that these photographs were uh, considered uh, sensitive department information and covered under the special access programs. And to this day, most Americans are not aware of that. It wasn't just until about uh, 2017, 2018, 
that a lot of the documentation dealing with the NRO was released publicly to the public, but most Americans didn't go after it. As a matter of fact, to be sure, in 1992, when they finally told members of Congress of the special committee, well, yeah, they did have a unit involved with the interest of things dealing with objects in space and all this, but it's primarily to deal with what the Soviets put up there, uh, which they didn't even acknowledge as existing, and that was the National Reconnaissance Organization. In 1995, members of Congress would come back. We never heard of this. Well, in 1992, yes, they did. So then they had to go ahead and say more about it at that time, which was a good thing because at that time they started releasing some photographs and making it clear that they had taken photographs, and they made it clear. And they used the term, which they wasn't supposed to use, but they used it, unidentified flying objects. And Were either... Sorry, go ahead, no, Clifford. No, finish. Go ahead. Yes. I was going to ask you whether Moon Dust or or Operation Blue Fly, uh, or any of their the antecedents or or those that came after, did they operate alongside of Project Blue Book? No, Blue Book was a public information program. To be sure, Blue Book was under a directive that stated. They were not to conclude, I say again, not to conclude any UFO reported to them, evaluated and investigated by them, which they did not do the investigations, uh, was of extraterrestrial origin. To be sure, the CIA and that office within the CIA, the Office of Scientific Intelligence slash Office of Scientific Investigation, they were the ones that actually did the investigation, the real investigation of UFOs. And they concluded that UFOs were real, that they were, some were, of extraterrestrial uh, origin under intelligent control by extraterrestrials, not of this world. And in 1952, 1953, it got very, very, very close that we almost had that information break out. The director of the, CIA, of the FBI, Edgar Hoover, got upset with the CIA because the, Air, the Intelligence uh, Activity Committee was very concerned about the UFOs that was being reported. On July the 19th and 20th, they picked up a UFO over Washington, D.C., it was confirmed and it was concluded this was a real solid object under intelligent control exhibiting highly advanced technologies. Then it died because it was just one UFOs and it didn't get a whole lot of publicity. A week to the day later, on the evening of July 20, July 26th, July 27th, the uh, uh, Washington, D.C. area was visited by better than 60 UFOs. They scrambled fighters to try to intercept them. They had radar plots showing that these were good, solid returns. They were making intelligent maneuvers. And the big problem was now the media is asking questions, and they had to shut the media up. So on July 29th, the Pentagon held a news conference that was trying to make it clear that no, these were nothing more than uh, objects that was being picked up. They were, they were fake returns. There wasn't nothing real. And this is what was being told to the public. One, two, three, three rooms down from where they had that conference, 
they were holding another conference where the um, members of the intelligence community was being told, hey, look, these things are real. They're serious. They seem to be under intelligent control. And if for no other reason, they could accidentally trigger a world war between the U.S. and the former Soviet states. So the whole situation is people didn't know about that. It got so serious that the... Uh, the Intelligence Advisory Committee met and saying, you know, we need to take this serious. There were two reports that was done that made it clear that, you know, whether you believed in UFOs or not, whether you believe they were real or not, they represented a direct physical threat to the security of the United States and that they could lead to an accidental war. And the situation was, was that the Air Intelligence Advisory Committee, or the, and the Intelligence Advisory Committee, the CIA, concluded there needed to be every intelligence organization within the United States government involved in getting truthful, solid uh, information on UFOs, and not just the Air Force, which the Air Force was always trying to get out of the picture. So, so it's what Clifford. was they came to a conclusion that they needed to have a scientific committee to investigate UFOs. So, Clifford... Yes. Yeah, when, when you say that, so all of these people are on top of this issue from the very beginning. And it's, it, it, it appears that sort of everybody's on board with this. What stopped it from coming forward back then as it's coming forward right now? The, 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 the information that we've got from the Pentagon and, and all the, the U.S. Navy right now is one thing. But back then, was that a similar situation or... Uh, was it subverted in a way that it just didn't leak out or didn't get into the public domain? Well, the whole situation was was it was hard to get documentation into the public hands to back up what I'm telling you right now. That information mm-hmm. is now available, but people don't bother reading it, and they they are zombie-like in that they go ahead and they will... They're, they're controlled. The government tells them, this is what you should believe. This is what's true. And the people believe that. If they tell them that the sky is green, then they're going to believe that, even though we know it's blue. Uh, back in, the, in that day, people were much, 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 much more patriotic. Blind patriotism is what we call it today. And I have a problem with blind patriotism, because when I took my oath, it said, I will defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic. And I put my life on the line, I put my career on the line, I put the possibility of me losing my family on the line there in, uh, what, 1986, because they told me to shut up and not say no more about UFOs, not to write to any members of Congress, not to go ahead and correspond with any government agencies. And I essentially said, you know what, you don't have the right, people have the right to know the truth, and I have a right to do what I'm doing. It's not a violation of any law. They relieved me of my duty. They made me undergo a psychiatric evaluation. When all that failed, they then tried to court-martial me because I was failing to comply with a lawful order. And I didn't have any lawyers on, on my side. As a matter of fact, some of the people in the UFO field were uh, put it out to, and I mean, John Price is one person that was a friend of mine. If they talked to him, he had several UFO researchers saying, well, if he, if, if he exposes, 
any classified information, we will report him. And true, that's a violation of uh, regulations, and it's also a violation of the Espionage Act. So what I did, I tried to make sure I wasn't, you know, violating any real laws. I knew I was coming close because I wasn't talking the party line. But the whole situation is, uh, by the grace of God, the people that really knew what I was trying to do, and a lot of people in the field at, at, at behind closed doors actually agreed with what I was trying to do. So they sent me to advance camp uh, at uh, Fort Lewis, Washington, and while I was gone, they released three field grade officers there at the unit that I was assigned to that's trying to do all this stuff to me. And can, you tell, back, can you tell us okay, more about your initial... Overseas. Yeah, can, Clever, can you tell us more about your initial early childhood experiences that led you to be um, contacted by or implicated with uh, the U.S. military? Well, you know, I, I had a normal childhood all the way up to maybe, what, six, seven years old. Then I started to have some kids coming to see me about my same age, and, you know, we played together. But, you know, the situation was they were telling me, don't tell other people about us because they can't see us. And I thought, that's crazy. I can see you. And everything went good. Uh, except when I told my mom, my dad, oh, no, no, these are just imaginary friends. I, I knew the difference between imaginary friends and what I was seeing. It was truly real. And, you know, that helped me with my homework. And... We would talk about certain, and some of the things I was wondering, oh, gee, you know, this is way over our head. Why are they even talking about this? But at that time, to me, they, they were just normal school kids just like me. Then one day, I came across this little bird that just hatched from its egg, maybe a day old or something like that, and it fallen out of its nest. It broke its beak and it's bleeding. Then I took it and I tried to heal it. I put it underneath this... Uh, faucet trying to stop bleeding and of course that killed the little bird I felt like a cold-blooded murderer when that happened I didn't like killing anything period I mean I didn't like killing even insects and who would right one person that I saw as a little boy a blonde-headed boy about my age about my size all of a sudden he appeared in front of me really shocked saying why do I feel what I feel in, inside of me? Why is it I want, and I want to have tears like you have in your eyes? Then I saw him turn the way he really looked, and that was the little green creature I've always known as Corona. When I saw that, scared me to death, and I knew something was terribly, terribly wrong. I ran to try to hide, and I ran. I hid behind the couch, and he showed up there. I ran and hid behind the area, the space between the refrigerator and the sink, and I felt like these little bony hands scratching me on the head. It's like saying, you can run, but you cannot hide. Then he started very carefully, very patiently telling me, look, we have chosen you, and I will be following you throughout your life. The day you die, barring I have no accident that takes my life, I will be around to grieve your your passing. 
but, you know, we need to get to where we understand that this isn't something that you need to be crazy about. This is something that is reality. It's going on. Then at that time now, at a very young age, about six, seven years old, I had to make a decision to go ahead and accept what was going on in my life and learn from it or fight it, which eventually it would drive me crazy. So I chose to try to accept it and learn from it. So from that day on, I had these events, you know, going on in my life. I couldn't deny them. I mean, when I went through school, I'd even tell people about them. And, of course, they'd make fun of these things, but I could not deny it because it would be like denying myself. If they choose to believe me or not believe me, so be it. Throughout my life, that's been my attitude. But the whole situation is is that I I try to get in the military because that's I was patriotic. I, I love my country. My country is like, you know, God, country, and mom's apple pie. And we had the Vietnam War at its height at that time. And I had friends going in and dying because of the Vietnam War. And I felt I had an obligation to serve my country. So I went ahead and signed up for the, uh, they called it the delayed entry program. And I wanted to become a helicopter pilot. So while I was still in high school, I signed up for it. They sent me to Fort Hayes, Columbus, Ohio, to the MEB station there. And I underwent a physical there, and they determined at that time that I had medical problems, and I was permanently medically rejected from military service, so I was 4F. So now I knew I couldn't get in the military. I went ahead, graduated from high school there at Hayes Valley, there at Asheville, Ohio, and people get Asheville and Ashland, Kentucky, both mixed up, but it was Asheville, Ohio, and the high school is still there, Tays Valley High School. Then I went home. I'd been home for a little less than a month. I got a notice that they want to do a reevaluation on me. I'm saying back, why do they want to do that? Because normally that didn't happen. If, they, uh, if you were evaluated permanently disabled, you didn't go back for a second time. But I got it, and of course my mom didn't want me to go off to war, and I said, Mom, that's not going to happen. I'm medically rejected from military service. So I went ahead and went there. When I got there, I passed everything with flying collars except for the physical. They had a captain that was doing the evaluation of the physicals, and he was permanently there. They had a colonel that was uh, from a hospital there in Washington, D.C., and he was visiting, and he told the captain, look, this is Friday, take your family, Fourth of July weekend, by the way, take your family, go to Camden Park, which was an amusement park there in Huntington, West Virginia. I'll finish up the physicals here. He saved me to last. Then he called me, and he says, I understand you really want to get in the service. I explained to him, I feel like I really have an obligation to serve my country. Clifford, excuse yeah. the interruption. I've got to jump in here. We're going to take a quick timeout. We'll come back and we'll uh, let you finish up on this important point. Victor Vigiani, Zealand News Network, and uh, Clifford Stone, my guests, talking UFO crash retrieval on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. When you look at the sky, ever wonder if someone's looking back? This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. 
To speak with Richard live, call 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. Welcome back. Before we get back to my conversation with Victor Vigiani and Clifford Stone, I just want to uh, shout out a big thank you to Star Chamber donors at Patreon, Denny Bladell and Kirk Shamal. Uh, Kirk and Denny uh, are just terrific uh, wonderful uh, supporters of this program and my podcast at Patreon. They are Star Chamber donors. Denny and Kirk, uh, words cannot express my gratitude. Thank you. And uh, if you'd like to become an official donor uh, at Strange Planet, you can go to patreon.com slash strange planet. Patreon.com slash strange planet. There are a number of donor tiers available and you choose the one that's right for you. And uh, my eternal gratitude goes out to you as well. All right, um, uh, Clifford, um, I, I, I want to move ahead just because time is tight. And I know we were in the midst of discussing how you ended up in uh, in Vietnam, despite being originally uh, disqualified or being labeled 4F. Uh, obviously, they wanted you there and uh, they were they were willing to move heaven and earth to do it. But I'm just wondering if we if we could maybe tie a quick ribbon on that and then move into the actual your actual work in UFO retrieval. Well, when I got in, I, I saw that there are certain things where they were trying to groom me for certain things. Like uh, at my AIT, going in for a clerk typist. Well, I got to see a typewriter one day in my AIT, which was eight weeks. But I had details every other day, and most of those were over at the uh, intelligence office, base intelligence office. And they had a person in there from Fort Belvoir, Virginia. And he brought up the subject of, uh, how do you feel about UFOs? Well, my mama didn't raise any fools, so I said, I don't know. I don't really give him much thought. So I think you probably give him more thought than what you want to admit to. So he started to show me records, tried to start to show me pictures, and I noticed they were uh, marked with secret, top secret, then they'd have a slash, and they'd have uh, other words following them, and at, at some point they could be up to 11 different words, and at that time that was perfectly okay. But I didn't know what those meant. I knew what secret meant. I knew what top secret meant, and I said, you know, sir, I don't think you should be showing this stuff to me. He says, uh, private. I'm not showing you anything that I don't have a reason to show you. So I went ahead and uh, graduated from AIT, went to my first unit there at Fort Belvoir, Virginia, 36 Civil Affairs Company, 96 Civil Affairs Group. The first thing I did when I got to my company, I saw my first sergeant, first sergeant Weeks, and I said, sir, our first sergeant, I think you should know I can't type. But you're a clerk typist. I said, yes, first sergeant, but they didn't teach me anything. There. I said, no, no. You went there. It says here you can type 74 words per minute. I said, yes, first sergeant. They lied. So he went in to talk to the captain. When he went and talked to the captain, the captain went over my records, and he came out, and he asked me a strange question. Uh, what color of uniform do you have on there, private? And I says, well, green, sir. I mean, army, you know. Well, I just want to see if he wasn't colorblind. What was, I didn't know at the time, my DD form uh, 4 reflected that I had enlisted three years 
in the United States Air Force. That would come back to haunt me later on. So I went ahead, and they decided, look, if you can't type, if you're not good as a clerk type, we need somebody as a unit NBC, uh, nuclear, biological, chemical, non-commissioned officer, to take care of the NBC equipment, the fuel phones, and all that. I said, okay. So they said, okay, we're going to send you uh, to school, a uh, three-week course, to learn what you need to know about this, because it's going to be given to you as an additional duty. So I went, and when I got to school, um, everything seemed normal. I mean, we learned about NBC. The only thing was out of the norm. They showed us some film, which, you know, it was more intelligence than what it would be anything to do with NBC. And they said, okay, here at 500 and some odd miles in space, this is planet Earth. And they went in, okay, this is the United States. And they went down... This is New York, uh, New York City. Then they went down. This is a person sitting on a park bench in New York City, reading the newspaper. Then they went down. This is the headlines of that newspaper. All this being taken 500 plus miles in space. At that time, that type of technology wasn't supposed to exist. They never explained to us why they showed that to us. But the whole situation is, all of us that was there, in, in my class, we all saw it. And I know not everyone was involved with the UFOs, but I firmly believe, although, although I was never told, that this was part of my orientation to get me ready to be involved with UFOs. Now I go back to my unit. When I go back to my unit, they go ahead and uh, we go on what's called an FTX, a field training exercise. And that was at Indian Town Gap, Pennsylvania. While we're out there, word came in that there was a crash of a Soviet fighter in that area there, and we had to go out to recover. And we were going to be the NBC B team, because they already had the A team already there, to back up the A team. So we went ahead. I had a deuce and a half that had all my equipment in it, and there were about, what, five deuce and a half and three Jeeps that made the convoy when we went out there to that area. And when we went out to the area where the crash took place, I remember we went ahead, I started to set up, and they said, no, 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 you don't have to worry about it. said, uh, we need you to do other things. And the guy that I met that I always, thereafter, I always called the colonel because I had a lot of contact with him. He says, son, I need you to take your uh, Geiger counter, uh, APD-27. I need you to go out to the berm and call back the readings that you're getting off that Geiger counter. And I said, okay, sir. And he says, every couple feet, I need you to call back the reading. So started off, normal background radiation, and I went a little higher, a little higher. Then I got to the berm, to the top, and I looked down. I thought, oh, my God, this isn't a Russian craft. It was like the heel of a shoe. where The rounded part, the back of the heel, went into the ground, and there was a... Uh, like a kidney-shaped door on the side of what you'd call the canopy of the craft. And halfway out was a, the body of what you would call a typical gray alien. And I saw what going on there, and I immediately turned around and I said, Sir, I need an officer up here. And he went ahead and says, Just tell us what you're seeing, son. 
And I said, no, sir, you don't understand. I need an officer up here. What I'm seeing, I guess, can't be real. He says, just tell us what you're seeing. And finally, I started telling him what I was seeing. And I remember saying, do you believe me? And he says, yes, son, come on back down. I went back. They made me sit in the back of the deuce and a half. And I didn't have no field phones connected up like I had at the training site that I was at initially. I just sat back there, and I monitored the two quick uh, 25 radios I had. And uh, I watched. They came in. They had a crane lift up the craft itself, put it back on uh, what we call a low boy, covered it with a canvas, took it out. Then I saw uh, three uh, stretchers, and they had three bodies on them. And what people don't understand, you, even after death, you can pick up on things. Like these entities would say, they have families just like us. And they were recalling that they were no longer going to see their families again. And other things, you know, I'm thinking, how do I get this stuff out of my mind? How is it I'm picking this up? This can't be real. Anyhow, I went back, and no one even debriefed me on that. It was like it was nothing that happened. Then it was about a month or so later, uh, a friend of mine that went to NBC school with me, uh, his name was Jack, I can't remember his last name, but when I went to NBC school, my return ticket to my unit, it came up missing, and, you know, I didn't have a lot of money, so I didn't know I was going to get back to my unit. Anyhow, Jack says, that's okay. I got my vehicle, and I'll take you. I'll Clifford, i got to jump in here. Again, excuse the interruption. We'll uh, take a quick timeout, come back. Clifford Stone, UFO crash retrievals with Victor Vigiani right here on The Conspiracy Show. Keep it uh, right where you have it. Back with more. The truth is not out there. It's right here. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Uh, Clifford, I want to move ahead if we can. I know we didn't finish up on that last point, but the time is tight and uh, we'll have to have you back on uh, again for the full two hours. But I wanted just to, to get Victor Vigiani in here, maybe perhaps uh, to, to, to discuss another crash, the UFO crash. Uh, Victor? Yeah. Okay, Thanks, Richard. Um, it, uh, Clifford, you and I have spoken uh, a couple of times uh, was in the past week or so, and your emotional response to all of this has been extremely intense. But one of the things that has perplexed me that you mentioned, and you mentioned it twice in our conversations previously, was that um, I'm not sure how many intelligence agencies were involved, but uh, you, you indicated to me that there is some sort of contract or agreement uh, and this is very disturbing. I don't want to. I don't want to. You know, uh, play it down at all. But there is some sort of agreement between intelligence agencies in the U.S. intelligence service and um, you know, it, 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 there's some sort of agreement as to the return of bodies of crashed vehicles. And there's they, they, these people come back and and return them. What is that all about? There exists an understanding, I'll put it that way, between us and our visitors, that 
their dead will be returned to them because they have reverence for their dead just like we have reverence for our dead. So just like the ones that got killed here in Roswell, New Mexico, mm-hmm. there was an agreement that the bodies would be returned to the cultures from which they came from. And that took place at a place they called it the dark side of the moon, mm-hmm. there at White Sands Missile Range, right outside of Alamogordo, New Mexico. Uh, the whole situation is, is that people think, okay, they were sent to uh, Wright-Patterson. They may have been, because it was a week or two later that this took place. The ex- right. exchange took place where the bodies were returned. But they think, that, okay, we go ahead and we do autopsies on these bodies. We don't do autopsies. But the whole situation is we realize that we don't understand the internal mechanism of these entities. So we try to get to the point where we understand. So we do what is called dissection, where we understand, oh, this is how this works in our our visitors. This is how this works in our visitors. But because Mm -hmm. there are several species, when I got out, I knew knew the existence of 57. And that was because of a medical book that the medical team had uh, there with the uh, UFO crash recoveries. So if there were entities that were injured, we could render first aid till they got a medical unit there that could go ahead and do better. Right. And the closest I came to getting killed with this, it was in 1969 there at Fort Belvoir, Virginia. They took me to this location, which had a little building way out in the middle of nowhere. And they told me, okay, we have one of the visitors there. He's our guest. I go there. And when I go there, we go ahead, we have to walk through the fence, and they have guards there. Get back, there's this field desk and a chair. And one of the entities is sitting there, and he's looking down, and he looks up at me. And it's like you hear a voice, but it's in your mind. And he looked up at me, and he says, I am afraid. And, you know, I feel the emotion peacefully, and I don't know how to explain that. But I was said, what can I do? He says, my people are coming to get me. They don't want to hurt no one here. My, say that again, my people. Say, say that again, my people, people what? Here. Okay. Unless you could help to get me out in an open area. So I went ahead, talked to a friend of mine, Spec by Warwick. I says, you need to put some uh, wire cutters out by the the back of the fence out there, so I can go ahead and use them later on. And he says, what are you going to do? I says, you don't need to know that. So I convinced everyone that the entity wanted to tell me something and show me something. There can't be any people there. The guy always called the colonel. He was a little leery, but finally he went ahead, well, you know, where am I going to go? So he went ahead, took everyone out. When everyone went out, I took our visitor, took him to the back, and I started to clip like crazy to make a hole in that fence. And we got home, and I put him through it. Then I heard people coming out and saying, halt, 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 stop, I will shoot, stop, I will shoot. And I mean the loudest clacking I've ever heard in my life, where they were locking and loading rounds. And I knew that night I was going to die. But anyhow, no one shot. All of a sudden, there was a craft overhead. It shined down a big, bright light. I think pretty much blinded everyone. Mm-hmm. And it went on 
lasted two or three seconds, then went off, and our visitor was gone. He was in the crowd. Then, of course, my guy always called the colonel. We went back up. He's chewing me out big time. Everyone says, well, you should have been court-martialed. You should have been. Well, maybe I would, but there'd be a whole lot of things people would be asking about. How can I be court-martialed helping a non-existent entity escape? But I went there, and I, he, he said, you know, you should have let me know what was going on. I said, I couldn't. You, I, you brought me here, and you said, this entity was our guest. And we were treating him like a prisoner, and we had armed guards with weapons loaded. If he tried to make any move to escape, we would have shot and killed him. That's not a guest. Anyhow, we talked about that, and we had other discussions about it later on, I think. There was other protocol that was made up to where we would no longer treat them like they were captives, that they would really be treated more like guests, and we'd try to get through to where we could do something for them. Right. Uh, Clifford, I've got a break here in about 30 seconds, but very, very quickly, could you could you tell me uh, what he looked like, this entity? Yeah, he was uh, uh, on a typical gray, but he was a little more than four foot tall, and he had coal, coal black eyes. But it was like I could go ahead and look in his eyes and I could feel the warmth of his for lack of a better term, spirit. He didn't want it to hurt anybody, but he had this fear of not seeing his family no more. And All right. I couldn't we'll, identify uh, with that at the time. But less sure. than a year later, I could, because I was in Vietnam, and we were in the pitch of several different battles. So, All right, Clifford. I've got to take a quick time out. We'll come back. Uh, one segment remains. Clifford Stone, Victor Vigiani, right here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Keeping an eye on the new world order. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. To speak with Richard, call 416-360-0740 or toll free 1-866-740-4740. Clifford, before I throw it back to uh, Victor Vigiani, I just wanted to ask you, because you have such a a vast collection of of government documents related to this issue. Do you have photographs or film footage, video footage of any of these entities that you're not able to release? Clifford, if I did you hear me? If question truthfully, oh. it puts me in arm's way. Ah, Hopefully you right. can understand what I'm trying to say there, but I will say this. In 73... We went out to a field where there's allegedly a craft. When we got there, there's no craft, but there are all kinds of strange rocks out there. We formed a skirmish line. We were told to go and pick up any of the objects we find to be very, very strange. I went ahead as I'm going through. I knew that this time I was planning to get out of the Army for good. But, I mean, with all the events that happened in my life, I didn't know how I could ever explain this to people. Even though some of my friends, I showed them, I'm about to say what you were asking, I showed them pictures, I showed them documents, but I had permission to do that. So now they knew, even though I sounded crazy when I was a kid in high school, now they knew I was working with it officially, and I had the documentation to prove it. One of the photo albums I had, as a matter of fact, was from uh, uh, um, 
Kodak, I think, and it was called Blue Book, which I thought was ironic. But I went ahead and I'm thinking, okay, you know, and I wasn't supposed to keep any of that stuff, but I thought I got to have something. Oh, these rocks were highly unusual. Never seen anything like them in my life, and never seen anything like them afterwards. But I thought if I get one of these, I can prove to people that I was involved in something. So I picked one up, put it in my boot, and left the field there. As we returned back to my unit, I started to worry about it, thinking, you know what? This is so sensitive. They thought that I had this. They would probably go so far to take my life to make sure it doesn't get out in the public. So I kept it, and I had people, people didn't even know they were my friends, that held on to this rock for me. And I didn't say anything about it until about a year or two ago. Then I brought it out. And some of the people that I brought it out to, they went out, they tested it. Uh, Gaia, they had some equipment that they tested there, and they found that it would actually reverse magnetic fields. It would go ahead and be magnetic at times, then it would be non-magnetic. And at least three people told me that they thought that this rock had a personality of its own. But it had high strangeness. My friend from Bulgaria, he would have to tell you he thought there was things strange about it, too. He also ran tests the same way. We hit it with a magnet. It showed to be magnetic. Then all of a sudden, it wasn't magnetic anymore. We checked the magnet that we used out. The magnet itself was no longer magnetic. And it would change the magnetic fields. Where it was a north-south uh, magnetic field, it reverse it to a south-north magnetic field. Uh, it would make a compass spin like it's going crazy. But, yeah, I have that. And I do have some photographs. That I'll tell you right now. I have some lectures from uh, Dr. J. Allen Hynek where it makes it clear he believed UFOs were real. And there's slides of that. If I don't get those converted into something else soon, they're going to be lost to prosperity forever. And I hate that because these are really important to future generations so they can understand that this great man who for the longest of time felt that UFOs would go the way of the sea serpent, stepped back and finally said, you know, we have to start listening to these people and not saying they're all crazy. Something's going on. All right. I want to throw it back over to uh, to Victor here. Yeah, Clifford, uh, you and I spoke earlier, and and it's it's really a, a very devastating uh, revelation to me that you indicated to me that in the last few minutes that we have that intelligence agencies within the United States have contracted with extraterrestrial races to return these bodies or injured ETs to their original planet. Now, please explain how that might work and, and, and how that reality can possibly be expected to be understood by the general public. Well, exactly how it works, I wasn't involved in the internal network of that. But the whole situation is, like, if we're on our way to a crash site, 
Mm-hmm. And actually, this happened in November 1963, an incident right out there at, uh, uh, well, in California, what's the name of that air base out there? Edwards. Edwards Air Force Base. And that, it actually, there was a file on Blue Book before they pulled it, where they had a UFO that came down like a falling leaf, landed on a dry lake bed out there. They sent a strike team, which is a heavily armed security force, out to secure the craft that went down. Another craft appeared and came down over it. When this happened, the strike team was uh, notified and said, stay in place, don't go any closer. Then when the other craft looked, looked exactly like the first one was on the ground, got over it, I don't know how many feet or so above it, it started to go up slowly and gradually. Then the craft underneath, it started to wave like still like an old leaf being blown by the wind and was lifted up until it was totally out of sight. Uh, that right there, they, they launch rescue teams just like if we have a plane crash in the wilderness. We go looking for that aircraft and for survivors. They do the same thing. And one thing that people need to understand, they are highly evolved and intellectual creatures. They aren't, you know, monkeys out in the jungle. And all too often, you know, we say, oh, well, you know, they crash. They don't really care what happens. Well, no, no, they do. Mm -hmm. Uh, I had a little... And a person very close to me, and you know of her, she'd have to tell you her story. Uh, but I had a little crystal, and I could hold that in my hand. I could see three-dimensional uh, structures and everything, which if I would think about it, and they'd show up dealing with their own planet. And uh, other things is you become, I guess they call it like being a sensitive. When I worked at Job Corps, I could pick up things with my kids out there. And they always said, they said that I was a sensitive and called me something else. Because they knew I had this, and I'm going to call it a gift. A lot of people call it a curse. But they said, well, why don't you go buy lottery numbers and win money? And I made it clear to them, you know what? This right here is a gift where I can help you people. I can't make myself rich. I can't do anything to improve myself. But the situation is, when things are happening, I can help you. And I had one young lady one night, she was going to kill herself. I was at home, it was my day off. I couldn't escape that she was going to kill herself. So I went ahead and I went out to work. And, you know, the security guards are, well, everything's okay, don't worry about it, Tony. Well, we went looking, and we went by the female dorm. And she was sitting out at the smoke shack, and something told me I need to stop talking to her. So I went and talked to her. Mom didn't want to take her back. Dad didn't want to take her back. She had no place to go. And in a week, she was going to be graduating from the center. And We've got about a minute here, Clifford. I'm sorry to rush you. We've got about a minute here. Okay, I gave her my phone. She went ahead, called her grandma. Grandma was going to take her. So I helped pay for her to get to her grandma. The next day I came in, she told me, says, you didn't even was working yesterday. Why did you come in? And she told me, you knew I was going to kill myself last night. I says, yeah, I heard that. She says, you know how you tell me that you feel guilty every day of your life because other people died in Vietnam and you lived. Have you ever thought maybe God spared you 
So you knew when you got here with us, you would help us. And she said, I asked God last night for help, and he didn't come. I turned to her and I smiled, and I said, you know, God was busy. So in his stead, he sent me. And, you know, the girl now, she's married, she has two children, and she's told her whole family about that night. Clifford, it's a remarkable story. Thank God you were there. And uh, thank you so much for uh, for hanging out this last hour. We're going to have to have you back on and uh, delve into this uh, further. But uh, really appreciate your time, Clifford Stone. Thank you so much. Thank you, sir. And forgive me for getting emotional, but you know what? When you live this stuff, it's part of your life. I can tell the uh, the emotion is raw. Uh, and sure. uh, that uh, definitely just adds to your, your credibility. Uh, thank you again, Clifford. Victor, always a pleasure. Thank you. Yes, it's been great, and I'm glad to contribute. Victor Vigiani, Zealand News Network. My thanks to Ryan and Carlos back next week with Jerome Corsi. The plan to remove President or to remove Donald Trump from the presidency and Norman Traversi will talk about his private prosecution against Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. Until then, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite, I'm coming home. Or at least up the stairs. Good night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.